Have you ever experienced a season of intense and prolonged effort? You're exhausted, but worse, it doesn't seem like you're making any progress. Jesus' inner circle experienced such a moment, and I want to talk to you about that because it has a, an, an amazing connection to the resurrection. But in order for you to understand this moment when they are pouring all this energy into something and getting nowhere, I need to walk back to a few days before this event. And so we'll do that, and then we'll arrive at that day, and then I want to talk about what happened in that day. Now, the particular moment that I want to focus on comes at the end of a season of ministry in which the 12 were commissioned by Jesus and sent out in pairs. So they went out two by two to different communities and they were ministering. And here's what Mark 6 tells us about it. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and helping and healing them. This is amazing. You know, they were commissioned to go out and Jesus is not accompanying them since they're split up and they were experiencing this amazing work of God through their hands. So the 12 returned from this ministry tour that would be the equivalent of a short-term missions trip. You know, it has been high output, high energy, and they gave Jesus a full report of their amazing adventures. We were preaching the gospel and we were casting out demons and we were healing people. I'm sure that they were spent, but they were energized. You know, in our house, we talk about a good tired. You know, they were tired, but it was a good tired. But there's no pause button for ministry, and a steady stream of people in need just keeps coming. Here's what Mark 6, 30 and 31 says. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that, had, that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I mean, this steady stream of people where, and this is kind of the outflow of what they've been doing, people in need. And so they were energized, and Jesus said, Guys, we need a guy's getaway. The pace was so intense they couldn't even grab a bite to eat. And so they're going to travel to a secluded place for a time of rest and recharge. And I'm sure that everybody was looking forward to some downtime, <laughs> some breathing room. So now I'm going to talk to you about what happened in the day previous to the day that I want to focus on, all right? So Jesus' popularity has been growing. Uh, even Herod is aware of who Jesus is, and he's actually a bit on edge because he thinks, this is John the Baptist coming back to haunt me. So Jesus and the 12 took the boat. I assume that was maybe Peter's boat, but it's never identified, but the boat is mentioned in a number of places in the gospel. So Jesus and the 12 took the boat across the lake to a location that was not populated. Now, Lake, the Sea of Galilee 
is about 13 miles long, north and south, and about eight miles wide. So someone on the shore, especially if you're kind of up a hill a little bit, you could actually track where the boat is going. So when Jesus takes the boat with the 12 somewhere, this is not a lake of such size that someone disappears over the horizon. So you could actually watch and see what they're going. And here's what happened, Mark 6:33. The people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. <laughs> they see where they're going and so they're running around the shore of the lake to arrive there. This was supposed to be a quiet getaway, some recharge time with close friends. Instead, they disembarked into a clamoring crowd of probably 10,000 or more people, all of them in need. And I wouldn't blame them if they decided, as they're seeing this, to get back in the boat and head elsewhere. But Jesus is working from a very different playbook. And he sees this large crowd and he thinks, this is not an intrusion. These are people in need. And so his compassion for them drove what happened next. This is Mark 6, 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He discerned their need. These are people who need direction and guidance. And so he made a major change in his vacation plans. And John tells us in his account, this is recorded by all four of the gospel writers. It's a significant event. In John's account, he tells us that Jesus went up onto a mountain, so up onto one of the major hills overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And then he began to communicate truth on a broad range of matters in order to help these sheep find their way. Matthew and Luke's account also add that Jesus was healing many. So people were coming and Jesus was healing them. Needless to say, the sun was going down and nobody was moving. Who wants to miss out on this? Well, you know what happened next. Jesus personally prepared a meal of bread and fish for 5,000 men and an uncounted number of women and children. So, what, 10, 15,000 people. John tells us about one of the outcomes in his account. The people were so drawn to the prospect of making someone king who could feed them at will. And, and they decided, we want him to be our king. But Jesus will be no mere bread king. And here's what John tells us happened. This is verses 14 and 15 from chapter 6. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So here's this crowd, they've been fed, everyone has been satisfied, and they're saying, we want him to be king right now, right here, and we'll never be hungry again. And Jesus is not cooperating with that plan. 
Now, before he went up to the mountain by himself, he gave the 12 instructions. Here's what he said to them from Mark 6, 45 and 46. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. So Jesus directs the 12. He says, get in the boat. I want you to cross over to Bethsaida, which would be on the western shore, probably more than the northerly side. And then Jesus went to a mountain vantage point to pray. Now, in the Jewish calendar, a day begins around 6 p.m. A day begins with night that moves to day. That's why, for example, in the Genesis account, it says there was evening and morning the first day, the second day, etc. And so the day begins around 6 p.m., our time, and the dismissal of the crowd and Jesus going up onto the mountain and the boating instructions for the 12 are outlining what's going to happen in the first part of this day. And it proves to be a very long night. Now, I'm about to read for you the two verses that I wanted to show you originally. But to help you appreciate what's going on, I needed to walk through this stuff. So let me just review what has happened, all right? The 12 have recently returned from a high-energy ministry assignment. But the pace doesn't let up when they rejoin Jesus, and they struggle just to eat. So they attempt to get some space in their schedule, but instead of a getaway, they are thrown into the middle of a crowd storm. And it is a full day of ministering, including food distribution for 10 to 15,000 or more people. So instead of roasting marshmallows around the campfire and regaling one another with tales of miracles accomplished on their two-by-two assignments, they have been directed to row back across the lake in the dead of night, sans Jesus. Now, how would you feel in that moment? When you pushed off from the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, how would you feel? Now you're ready to read the verses that I want you to hear. Mark 6, 47 and 48. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now the fourth watch is between 3 and 6 a.m., so this means they have been rowing for, oh, seven, eight, maybe ten hours after a full day, <laughs> and they've traveled about two or three miles. They're in the middle of the lake-ish. And they are making zero or negligible progress because there's headwinds. Mark tells us they are straining and there's, they are working hard. They are not on cruise control. There's no sail. <laughs> and they've been doing this after everything that I've described before. 
Jesus is not with them, so it feels very much like they're on their own. Can you identify with the 12? Have there been moments where it has felt like you're rowing for all that's in you and getting nowhere? Frankly, I find it amazing that they are still rowing. Are you, perhaps even now, facing a situation where you don't have the energy or the wisdom or the will to move forward? A situation where, despite your best efforts, you are going nowhere. Maybe you would even identify with the 12 on the goal. In their case, they were instructed by Jesus, go to Bethsaida on the other side. Jesus told them, do this. So they're trying to go somewhere that Jesus told them to go. (laughs) But despite their best efforts... They are making little to no progress. Can you identify with them? I mean, it would be so easy to think. I'm attempting, this would be them thinking, I'm attempting to do what you're telling me to do, Jesus, but I am going nowhere. So let's call a situation like this. I want to get a term for us or a phrase straining against the oars because that's what they were doing they were straining against the oars but because of the contrary wind they were going nowhere they're trying to go where Jesus directs but they're making no progress where right now are you straining against the oars Mark says that the wind was against them. And I can actually identify with that from biking. I I don't have experience in a boat like they had, but uh, I've biked for a long time. And I can tell you different tales of dealing with wind. Uh, For example, I've been on bike rides where I've got a 20 mile per hour tailwind. And that's amazing. (laughs) You know, I can get up to 40 miles an hour. But then when I try and go the other direction, (laughs) and I have to come back, it's all I can do to go five. I remember one instance where I had been fasting for three days. I was pleading with the Lord for something, and I was on day three of a fast. So I hadn't had any food. I'd had water, but I hadn't had any food. And I was out on a bike ride. And again, this is one of those things where you're saying, Jim, why were you so stupid? I, I get it. But anyway, I was out on a bike ride, and uh, on the return, there's a section where I have to go up a hill, and it's probably about a mile and a half's worth of incline. (laughs) And I'm starting on that, and all of a sudden, my body just stopped. There was no supply of energy left for the absence of food. And so it was kind of like, you know, I was chugging along, going 20 or so, and... And my body's just out of energy. Sometimes uh, wind against you can be about circumstances. I remember this is up in Iowa. Uh, I was in the town of Washington, Iowa for a, a time of serving a church there. And so I went on a bike ride on the 
certain trail. I went to Westchester, about 10 miles away, and then I turned on another route, kind of going through the cornfield. But the, uh, the route to Westchester, they had recently put new gravel down, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I got a major flat. And I have a little pump, so I could pump it up. The problem was this was a, a major one to where I could pump it up and I could go maybe 100 feet before the air would come out. So I was stuck. I didn't have a repair kit. How, how did you deal with that, Jim? <laughs> well, I didn't. I am so grateful that, uh, you know, I'm out amongst all these cornfields. There happened to be a farmer there who was on his, uh, I call it a tractor, but it's this big giant thing. And he came over and said, hey, buddy, you need some help. And uh, eventually, you know, uh, he ended up going and getting his pickup and putting my bike in it and then taking me back to my apartment. That was nice. I like that. I think there are three common contrary winds faced by those who are trying to go where Jesus directs. When Jesus says, I want you to do this. I want you to go here. I want you to accomplish this. And I'm going to call them the three R's. No, not reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, regret, resourcelessness, and resignation. Regret, regret says, I cannot do what Jesus wants or get where he directs because of events from my past that I can't change. Sometimes the voice of recrimination will be talking. What were you thinking when you da 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 and so one of the reasons we feel like I can't get where Jesus wants me to is because of things from my past that I regret. Resourcelessness, this is about I'm inadequate. I don't have what it takes to achieve the goals Jesus has for me. I don't have the strength or the resources or the heart needed. That's really what happened to me when I ran out of gas was the resourcelessness one. Jesus, you're asking me to do this? There is no way I have it in me to do that. Then the resignation one is, there is nothing that I can do that is going to change what is going to happen. It doesn't matter what I do. Regardless of what I attempt, the outcome will be the same. It's going to be disappointing. Now, the text doesn't reveal much of what the disciples were feeling. There's one exception. I haven't shown it to you yet. But they were definitely straining against the oars, trying to get somewhere that Jesus had directed them to go, and they were making zero progress. Now, that's depressing. Jim, that doesn't sound very, you know, kind of Easter positive. Uh, yeah, but there's some good news. Let me tell you about the good news. Jesus saw them straining at the oars. Jesus was up on the mountain they may have felt like they were alone, but Jesus was attentive to their situation. He was paying attention to them. In fact, he came to them because he saw them straining against the oars. It actually, that the little article that's used or the preposition that's used tells us that's why he came. So when you are straining against the oars, one thing you need to know based on this passage is Jesus is able to say, I know what you're facing. I know what you're dealing with. 
So Jesus walks on water. Walking on water is something only God does. Job 9.8 says, Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? God is capable of trampling down waves and walking on water. So when Jesus does this, he's doing something that only God can do. Which is the second principle. The first one was, he knows what you're dealing with. Here's the second one. Jesus can do whatever is needed to help those straining against the oars. He can do things that only God can do for those who are straining against the oars. Now, at first, when they saw Jesus, they were afraid. Mark 6, 49 and 50 says, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. Now, by the way, I want you to hang on to that word terrified because I'm going to show you another passage where that word is used of you. <laughs> Same word, terrasso. They were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and he said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And do not be afraid, it's using a present tense, it's actually stop being afraid. Jesus told them to replace fear with courage based on his presence. See, it's me. I'm here with you. Now, Jesus had come near, but he hadn't come on the boat. But because they recognized Jesus and trusted Jesus, they, they took his advice. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. They received him into the boat. John 6, 20 through 21 says this. He said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing. And so tells us this is a result. He said, don't be afraid. Result, they were willing to receive him into the boat. And then get this. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They said, come on board, come on to the boat. And he stepped onto the boat, and then they heard, or whatever the sound of the, the bow was when it scrunched into the sand near Bethsaida. Now, no, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. This boat is in the middle of the lake, and Jesus steps onto the boat, and it's now magically transported three or four miles to the shore at Bethsaida? How is that possible? I don't know, but Jesus knows, and Jesus does. So here's another principle for us. When you are straining against the oars, this is the, this is the one that's so key, trust Jesus to supply what you lack to get you where he directs. You do your part. The disciples were doing their part. But there came a moment when they were terrasso, terrified, and Jesus says, trust me. And they invite him into the boat, and Jesus makes it possible for them to arrive at their destination. By the way, the wind stopped, too. 
Mark 6, 51 says, Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Now, I'm not going to get into it, but this is also the occasion in which Peter walked on water. Before Jesus was invited into the boat, Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, etc. And the waves were so terrific that he was freaking out. Started to sink. Jesus grabbed him. And then they got on the boat. And the minute they got on the boat, the boat arrived at the shore of Bethsaida and the wind stopped. When they, this is Matthew's account. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped and those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, you are certainly God's son. There is absolutely no way for what has just transpired to have occurred except for the fact that you are exercising the capabilities of God. Now, in the Mark passage, I, I read only half of uh, verses 51 and 52. I read you, then they got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished, but I didn't read the next part. I want to read this because it's critical. It says, and they were utterly astonished for, explanation, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. What? Their astonishment was actually something of an indictment. It revealed an unlearned lesson. There was something they were supposed to learn with the loaves that they hadn't quite gotten. What was that? Well, in the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000, which is really the feeding of the 5,000 plus probably another 5,000 plus maybe another 5,000 or more, what happened there? Jesus demonstrated that he can supply whatever is needed to address any challenge. He is God's son. The lesson should have been obvious and made further astonishment unwarranted. Jesus is capable of producing a meal in which everyone is satisfied for a group of 10 or 15,000 when you, the disciples, didn't know how to pull this off. Now, I want to be fair to the 12. We beat up on them sometimes because they didn't get it, and even this passage, it says they weren't getting it. But this is a lot to take in. In the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples were actually instructed to feed the crowd. Jesus told them, well, feed them. They said, how are we going to pull that off? One, we don't have enough money. And that assumes that there's a, you know, a quick mart or something around here where we could get enough food for them. It's not happening. No way. And Jesus said, yes, way. I am your resource. This is not about money. This is not about the availability of stores. I'm your resource. When you're trying to do what Jesus asks, and in that case, Jesus had told them. He said, you feed them. And they said, we can't. When Jesus tells us to do something, he will supply what is necessary for us to be able to do it because he is our difference maker. And they should have already learned that. The point, this is the key point. 
what's happening on the lake is not a one-off. It's a lesson he wanted them to learn with the feeding of the 5,000, and frankly, there are other places. It was a lesson that had to be repeated in the middle of the lake. Here is it. Here it is. For all who are straining against the oars, he is quite capable of getting you to your destination. Jesus can get you where he wants you to be. So let me tell you about the ultimate destination Jesus has in mind for you, everybody in this room. It's not, it's not Bethsaida, <laughs> although I'd love to go to Bethsaida. But whether I do or do not, I want to go where Jesus wants me to, and it is someplace far better. Listen to this verse. This is John 14.6. This is Jesus talking. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. Here's his destination. He actually wants everyone in this room to go to a certain place. That is, to be able to dwell in the presence of Father. Yeah, but Jim, <clears throat> I got a problem with that. You don't know what I've done. That's regret. You don't know what I can't pull off. That's resourcelessness. There is no way he's going to be able to do this. That's resignation. Those are the three R's. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what has a hold on my heart. There is no way I could possibly have a future with God. And Jesus says, hear him again. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, meaning everyone comes to the Father through him. There is a way. I am, and I'm not pointing at me, this is Jesus talking. I am that way. His crucifixion deals with the regret problem. You know, we have regret based on history, things we've done. The voice of recrimination, I can hear that voice. If, if they only knew what you had done, or why did you do this, there's no way you can receive something good based on that. Jesus would say, whatever you have done that you think would keep you from coming into the presence of Father, I took care of on the cross. It's been paid for. Yeah, how do I know it's been paid for? The resurrection. Nobody is released from prison until they pay their debt. Jesus was released from death because your debt, my debt, was paid. The resurrection is the proof that whatever is in my history, whatever I have done, is not going to keep Jesus from being able to get me to the destination, which is present with the Father. When he ascended into heaven and dispatched the Holy Spirit, that's the solution to the resourcelessness problem. The Holy Spirit gives us the will and the ability to actually do what pleases Jesus. It is possible for someone 
who names Jesus as Lord and Savior to receive the ability to have a will and to do work, do deeds that are pleasing to the Lord. Jesus arose from the grave and he ascended into heaven. And he's even now at our future destination preparing a place for us. The voice of resignation says, there is no way I could live eternally with God. And Jesus says and proves, I am the way, the truth, the life. You can come to the Father through me. Now, you remember, I told you to make a mental note of the word terrasso. You remember the emotional state of the 12 when Jesus came to them on the lake? It was terrasso. And terrasso actually sounds like terror, which is the English word that is derived from that Greek root. They were terrassoed. <laughs> Jesus told them to stop being terrified. They did and received him into the boat. And in that moment, the wind ceased and they arrived at their destination. And it is the same for us. Here's John 14, one through three. And the word terrasso shows up once more. This is a word that was uh, given to one of the disciples at the, the dinner that Jesus had before he was crucified. So this actually happened on the day of his crucifixion if you measure days starting at 6 p.m. And he said to him and he says to us, do not let your heart be terrasso. Stop being terrified. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going on ahead to the destination. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So now it's your turn to ask a question. Are you straining against the oars, trying to accomplish something that Jesus is asking of you? Stop letting your heart go into panic mode, despair or discouragement, and replace fear and frustration with bold faith. Simply ask Jesus for help and then watch what he does. You know, I can't help but think of Jonathan, who was uh, the supposed heir, but he was actually replaced by David, but he was a good friend with him. Well, there was a moment in Jonathan's life when he saw a, a garrison of Philistines and he said to the man with him, he says, then Jonathan said to the young man carrying his armor, come and let us cross over to these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not constrained to save by many or by few. I don't care what you're straining against. He is capable of supplying what we lack for us to be able to successfully do what Jesus is asking of him. You know, I've actually experienced this in my own life in <laughs> lots of different ways, but I'll share one with you. I have often been in the place where I have an hour or so to accomplish something that I don't see how I can accomplish it without a couple days. And so I've gotten before the Lord 
And I pled with him. I said, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I believe that doing this is something that would be honoring to you, but I don't know how I can pull it off. And then I've started the work, and within 30 minutes it was done. I can't even explain how that happened, except God took the humble scraps of my effort and decided I am going to bless that with work on your behalf. What about your eternal destiny? You can't get there on your own. No amount of rowing will do it. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in Jesus. Trust him to bring you home. He lives. He's alive. And it's preparing for your arrival even now. I don't know exactly where, but the location is a place where he is preparing a place for you. Why are you straining against the oars? Ask Jesus to be your center, to supply what goes beyond your effort and to accomplish what shouts, Jesus did this. Are you struggling with your eternal destination? Then trust in what Jesus has done and will do to bring you home to himself. You know, there was an interesting account. We think of Paul as someone who was this, and he was, this firebrand for Jesus. But there are three times that Paul gives an account of his testimony, and in one of them we catch a glimpse of something that to me is so interesting. Uh, God, Jesus, said to him when he appeared to him on the Damascus road, he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, Paul was actually straining against the oars. He was saying, I don't want to do this because he was realizing that he was believing a lie. And he eventually surrendered when Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And he invited Jesus into his boat. And he will be there where we will be, all who know Jesus, when Jesus takes us to the place that he has prepared. So everybody in this room falls into one of two categories. Some of you have already invited Jesus into your boat. But you're facing something that you're saying, it feels like I am not getting anywhere. Well, maybe what needs to happen is for you once again to say, Jesus, come back. Come to the middle of the boat and take me where you want me to go. I need your help. For some of you, you may be saying, I have never surrendered to Jesus. I have never invited him into the boat. You can do that here, right now, this morning. And you can say, Jesus, I want you to be the one who gets me to the destination which is with Father. Let's pray, and I will give both of you an opportunity to pray. I'm going to prompt you, and then you can pray. For those of you who would say, I am straining against the oars, ask Jesus to be your center, to supply what goes beyond your effort and to accomplish what shouts, Jesus did this. You do that right now and just tell him whatever it is that you're straining against the oars.
For others of you in this room, maybe you're straining against the oars as concerns your eternal destination. Trust in Jesus. Trust in what he has done. Trust him to bring you home to himself. Tell him that. Father, we desire to be a people through whom we see things that cannot be explained by our effort. We want to see what causes us to say, God is the only answer. God is the only explanation. We want to see what can only be explained by the good hand of God. And I am pleading for you to do that in this people. For those who have never known you as Savior before, that they would come to a place of saying, come into the boat. I want you to take me to the good place that you have in mind. For those who have struggled with an issue where you're asking them to do something that is a hard thing and it feels like they're making no progress, I pray that your spirit would minister encouragement and support and that they would arrive at a place where they can look back and say, I don't know how it happened, but God worked. We are desperate for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.